interrupt our program to bring you this important message. This is Trigger Warning. Welcome back to Elmi Speaks. I'm your host, Elmi Dahir. And on this new series, Trigger Warning, we go every week looking at current affairs and other pressing issues from the society, and we push the envelope. On today's first story, we talk about havoc at Huawei. Huawei is a Chinese tech company based in Shenzhen that sells smartphones and telecommunication equipment around the world. Earlier this year, it became the world's second largest smartphone maker behind Samsung, selling 72.2 million shipments, while Huawei did 52 million, and Apple trending last with 46.9 million phones shipped worldwide. But concerns that Huawei's devices pose national security threats have seriously hurt its ability to grow abroad. Intelligence agencies in the United States have said American citizens should not buy Huawei phones. U.S. government agencies are banned from buying the company's product and equipment. Security concerns have caused problems in the United Kingdom as well. New Zealand and Australia have barred Huawei equipment from its 5G networks. The company says its equipment is trusted by customers in 170 countries and it still performs well reporting a £47 billion revenue for the first half of 2018. That's an increase of 15% compared to its last financial year during the same period. Now that we have some background to work off of, let's understand why Huawei's CFO, Meng Zhu, or better known as Sabrina Meng, was arrested. She also serves as the deputy chairwoman of Huawei's board, and she's most notably the daughter of Huawei's elusive founder, Ren Zhenfei. Aside from a brief stint at China Construction Bank, the 46-year-old executive has spent her entire career at Huawei. Her brother, Meng Ping, also known as Ren Ping, works at the Huawei subsidiary, and there is speculation that they were beamed for succession. But... As you know, Huawei reportedly shot that idea down a memo to employees in 2013, stating his children vision, character, and ambition to lead the company. Meng is believed to have helped Huawei circumvent U.S. sanctions by telling financial institutions that a Huawei subsidiary was a separate company. Prosecutors said this at Meng's bail hearing on Friday 14th of December. Germany's Deutsche Telekom said last week it takes the global discussion about the security of network elements from Chinese manufacturers very seriously. The company says it uses multiple companies to build its network, including Ericsson, Nokia, and Cisco. Nevertheless, we are currently re-evaluating our procurement strategy, the company said. The statement is significant because until recently it had been one of Huawei's biggest cheerleaders based on its cheap and reliable equipment. About the same time, mobile provider British Telecom said it was removing Huawei equipment from key parts of its current 3G and 4G networks as part of an internal network and internal policy not to use it for core infrastructure, which will also apply to 5G networks. The British government's RON Center that tests the company's equipment and software this summer identified shortcomings in Huawei's 
engineering processes that have exposed new risks in UK networks. Huawei said it's working on fixing these issues. Irrespective of Meng's shortcomings, or rather alleged crimes, excluding Huawei won't be easy, analysts said. It's not like there's some cheaper alternative, said Paul Trillio from the Eurasia Group. Ericsson and Nokia don't produce the whole spectrum of equipment, referring to the Scandinavian companies that are the only non-Chinese competitors. Huawei has thrived in major European markets like Great Britain and Germany because their telecom industries wanted to ensure they were multi-equipment suppliers to avoid relying on one. So, if you're asking them to remove a major vendor from their markets, it's going to be difficult. And now, in Europe, we go to France. Mr. Emmanuel Macron has had a little bit of trouble with the French Yellow Vest protesters. Well, some of them liken him to Marie Antoinette when France was undergoing a famine. Marie Antoinette said, qu'il mange de la brioche. But some of the French, the working class French who live in the countryside, are now coining a new phrase. Although grammatically incorrect, the saying, qu'il mange de la macaron. And this says a lot about the French President Macron. The French Yellow Vest protesters have staged some of the most comprehensive protests seen in France since 1968. But who are the people making up that these Yellow Vest protesters? Well, for one thing, the French have historically exemplified that if their leaders won't listen, they're willing to ensure they remember that they could all die together. The protest thus named they distinctive yellow high-vis jackets required to be carried in every vehicle by French law initially came together to demonstrate against a sharp increase in diesel taxes. But its reason for being, or the reason for existing, has since expanded. The government's U-turn on fuel taxes has failed to appease everyone. The movement, born online, cuts across age, job, and region, and includes members of the working and middle classes, all affected by living. Its members range from factory workers and the unemployed to the self-employed, particularly artisans. What they all seem to have in common at the outset was their reliance on cars to get around, often living in more rural and less populated areas of the country. As the movement grew, their demands evolved, and have now morphed into general anger at higher costs of living, and President Emmanuel Macron's economic policies. So, is Macron asking them to eat macaron? You tell me. And now, back to England. Why didn't Santa deliver Brexit before Christmas? Well, I'm sure you all went downstairs to check the abundance of goodies Santa left under the tree, and it did not go unnoticed that Brexit was unwrapped in red, white, and blue. Even those who still want to leave the European Union must recognize that the attempt to do so has been and is a huge diversion of time, energy, and resources from other government priorities, said a staffer at the Parliament. Theresa May has postponed a long list of ghost policies, aka key pledges, under pressure from Brexit preparations. In addition to long-term plans for the NHS and social care, have now both been shelved until the new year. 
Her government has put off new measures against domestic violence, a ban on wild animals from circuses, a new law against exploitative ground rent increases for leaseholders, and new rules to stop employers taking staff tips. The way in which the Whitehall capacity is being soaked up by Brexit was illustriously dramatic this week by news that 600 staff at the Department for International Development are being temporarily deployed to other departments, not just legislation that is being slowed down by the Brexit bottleneck. One issue that has come to forefront of public awareness is a rise in rough sleeping in all of Britain's biggest cities and towns. This does not need legislation, despite the suggestion by the Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn that the Vagrancy Act of 1824 should be repealed, so it should. But it's not important. What makes the difference to the prevalence of rough sleeping is political will, governments, and determined leadership. It is not easy It means tackling the mental health and addiction problems that underlie most individual cases, as well as the shortage of decent housing. It can be done, and was done under the Labour government, to the point where rough sleeping was reduced to close to the minimum possible, and indeed to the point where our society and politicians as a government became complacent about it. It would be perfectly possible to get the number of rough sleepers back down, but it needs ministerial and prime ministerial commitment and focus. Every now and again, Miss May makes a big speech where she repeats her brave words on the steps of 10 Downing Street. She reminds herself and asks the public that she saw the vote to leave the EU as much about more than our relationship with other European countries. It was demand for a better society in which people gain more control over their lives and the quote, burning injustices, end quote, of modern Britain being tackled. But then she and her ministers are sacked back into Brexit and everything else is put aside for the critical negotiation, the crucial vote, and the urgency to prepare for the worst. Insouciant small staters might make light of all of this, saying that Belgium, for example, is better governed for not long periods of time. Government has the power to do exceptionally well. Energetic, committed, and idealistic ministers can make a difference. It is a national tragedy that their efforts are being diverted into the swamp that is Brexit. The final part of this podcast, we talk about the hypocrisy demonstrated by former immigrants, or is it that immigrants from the world and fourth-generation migrants want None of it. Albert Einstein, Nikola Tesla, and Levi's, just to mention a few pioneers, had something in common. What was it? And no, I'm not talking about their intellectual prowess. That's right, they were immigrants. Harvard Law Professor George Borjas, in his 2016 paper, stipulates, and I quote, a disproportional percentage of immigrants have few skills. It's low-skilled Americans who largely comprise of people of color who've shouldered the detriments of this wage dip. Further, it's saying these same low-skilled workers have increased the size of said workforce by nearly 25%. This increased competition has translated to an 800 to 1,500 decrease in wages per month. But another scholar I spoke to countered this by saying, although immigration poses real dangers, 
These are analogous to the outsourcing and automation phenomena that is now commonplace. With the exponential rise of the political right braggadocio, the setting North American president and colleagues to utilize, use, reuse, and recycle fear-mongering rhetoric was debunked by a well-known economist elaborating the aforementioned line of reasoning is attributed to partial equilibrium. The immigrants, most likely than not, aren't coming to steal a job or better yet, have your slice. They, in fact, are growing your pie. Due to all the prerequisites we as immigrants are subjected to and the endless Olympic hurdles, trust me, Declan from Northampton, we don't want your minimum wage job driving the bus or the mines they keep open to appease the lot of you. We are looking to build hospitals, therapy centers, all those corner shops and takeaways that you love, and how can we forget the distribution and ownership of property? <sighs> that was a lot. In other news, the PEW Research Center demonstrated in a paper that U.S. immigrants are more likely to have a university or college degree than native U.S.-born citizens. Additionally, immigrants to start business. 216 out of the 500 Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants. So, do you want to play of who it is or shall we just go through the familiar faces we know connected to these brands? We have Jeff Bezos of Amazon, the late Steve Jobs of Apple, Colgate, AT&T, Pfizer, Tesla, eBay, among loads others. A highly cited and revered paper by James Charles highlighted that a quarter of STEM field technologists are foreign. Charles's landmark study further highlighted that the economic growth experienced by G5 countries between 1950 and 1993 was a direct result of increased research intensity, and in 2015, more than half of all math, computer science, and engineers were from abroad. A majority of these students that end up completing their PhDs stay in America as well. But before we wrap it up, keep this in mind. 33 of the 85 Nobel Prize winners were immigrants. Who in the right mind would be up in arms about what's keeping your empire, influence, and quite frankly, a world that has metamorphosized beyond imperialistic thinking? Studies by Giovanni Perry and Chad from Stanford's Hoover Institute demonstrated in the face of reality, the average wage levels are not negatively affected. One counterpoint is that the impact differs among skill levels. In other words, the low-skilled immigrants depress wages for native low-skilled workers, but that is not how the world works. Global, national, and even state economies are much more dynamic than simple theory. It thus seems that immigration tends to complement native skills, for example, when you're working on a job site and your colleague who's an immigrant just came in, you will be pushed up to manager and he'll take your old place. When immigration is done right, it will use the fact-based reality that immigrants of all skill levels are good for the native economy, including wages, jobs, and economic growth. What I'm saying is that we aren't better as natives. We're saying direct your anger 
other government and her agencies, your parental unit for not encouraging you to attain more in life, but most importantly, if you keep doing what worked yesterday, that's how you feel tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode. I'm your host, Elmi.